Hello and welcome to the UCC School of Law podcast. My name is Michael Boland. Hello, my name is Ashling Ryan. Hi, I'm Bernard Lang. Hi, my name is Deirdre Leahy. Hi there, my name is Gordon Rumney. I'm Rhoda Jennings. Uh, hi, my name is Luke Noonan. Hi, I'm Alison Hardyman. And I'm Deirdre Kelleher. And we're just some of the PhD researchers at the School of Law, University College Cork. In this podcast, which is part of the UCC School of Law's Impact series, we will each give a brief description of our research and explain why it matters. We're also going to talk a little bit about the impact we hope our research will have. First up is Gordon Rumley, whose research is co-funded by the Irish Research Council and the Irish Legal Aid Board. Gordon's work explores methods of dispute resolution in family law. Thank you very much, Deirdre. So hi there, my name is Gordon Rumley, as I've mentioned, and I'm currently in the second year of my research. My research is in the area of family law, but more specifically in relationship breakdown, which mainly consists of separation and divorce cases. The aim of my study is to analyse the way in which separation and divorce is carried out in Ireland through mediation and litigation. I've always had a great interest in family law as it is continually changing and trying to stay abreast of developments in our society. It is, however, quite different from other areas of legal practice in that it is held in private, meaning that members of the public are not permitted to attend hearings. This can make studying family law somewhat unique and challenging at times. Another difference is that in family law hearings, it will often be the case that the presiding judge has discretion in deciding what is to be the outcome of the case, whereas in other areas of law, the judge is required to be more objective in making their decision. This means that it is difficult to predict the outcome of a family law case. So as mentioned previously, my research aims to evaluate the ways in which people can get a separation or divorce in Ireland. Many individuals trying to do so will require the services of the Irish Legal Aid Board. The Legal Aid Board has two common routes for getting a separation or divorce, these being a mediation route and a litigation route. These two routes are, however, very different in that the mediation process tends to involve the parties entering a negotiation to find out what works best in their particular situation. In contrast, the litigation process is more adversarial in its nature, with parties competing against one another. Deciding how to analyse these two methods of obtaining a separation or divorce was not an easy task due to family law hearings being heard in private. Thankfully, I am very fortunate to have the Legal Aid Board as a partner to this study, as they are the largest provider of family law services in Ireland and therefore store a large amount of data that is relevant to separation and divorce cases. It is my aim to analyse this data stored by the Legal Aid Board, along with interviewing a number of its mediators, litigators and clients. Doing this will allow me to build up a comprehensive account of the client's journey through the separation and divorce process so that I may make recommendations as to how these processes could potentially be improved. So unfortunately, relationship breakdown impacts a large proportion of the population. And when it does, it can be an extremely stressful and challenging process, both emotionally and financially. Given its prevalence, it is important that attempts are continually made to improve the process of relationship breakdown in order to minimise the potential distress it can cause. It also must be said that family law disputes are very complicated and can take a significant amount of time to resolve. It is for this reason, along with the lack of funding that has led our family court system to struggle with the demand it is being placed under. It is hoped that by analysing the dispute resolution process, it may be possible to make recommendations that will ultimately divert people from seeking a resolution through the courts in favour of a more negotiated resolution. Well done, Gordon, that was really good. 
It was really insightful and important research and looking at the ways you can get a separation divorce in Ireland and assisting clients in their journey and how to improve the process. Gordon won't say it himself, but he is a committed researcher. And the first time we all met him was online, seeing as we're in this COVID environment at the minute. And it was at a virtual conference where he presented his research to all of us. So well done, Gordon. Next up is Luke, Luke Noonan, who's researching the area of mental condition defences. Thanks, Rhoda. So my research, which is funded by the Irish Research Council, is looking at reform of mental condition defences in common law countries such as Ireland and the UK. And this is in light of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So the convention represents a paradigm shift in how we view disability. Moving from looking at disability as something that needs fixing to a social model, which instead places the burden on society to adapt in order to be fully inclusive. It's built around the concepts of equality and non-discrimination, and it emphasizes that people with disability possess human rights on the same basis as everyone else. Whilst these are obviously admirable goals, there are particular difficulties when the disability is a mental disorder. And as a result, there are some conflicts between some of the key rights in the convention and existing rules and procedures in criminal law. So the first is the right to liberty of a person with a disability. So in summary, the convention provides that no one can be deprived of their liberty by reason of a mental illness, even if the reason for that detention is combined with some other factor, such as dangerousness or need for treatment. This has a significant impact on the insanity defence. So in Ireland, if a person is acquitted by reason of insanity, the current law allows them to be detained in the central mental hospital if they are a serious risk to themselves or others. In the committee's view, this practice is discriminatory and must be abolished. The rationale is that other dangerous people acquitted of a crime do not face involuntary detention. So to achieve equality, persons found insane, which is essentially an acquittal, must be charged unconditionally back into the community on the same basis as any other dangerous person. The second conflict occurs as a result of the protection of legal capacity. In essence, this means the right to have your decisions legally respected on the same basis as others. So it prohibits treating the decisions of someone with a mental illness different, merely because of a defect in their decision-making ability. And the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights has interpreted this provision to prohibit any defences which operate to declare someone not responsible for their behaviour because of a mental illness. Their decision to commit a crime should be judged on the same basis as everyone else. So the guidance of the convention is really a complete departure from the principles that have governed the criminal justice system's approach to mental illness. So my research is to consider what reform should be implemented as a result of the convention principles. Thanks very much, Luke. Uh, that's such an interesting research topic. It's fantastic. And I know it's already having an impact, uh, having been cited in the Irish Times in May um, in a piece considering the defence of insanity in criminal law, and also that you've, you're published in the Irish Jurist, which is such a prestigious journal. So well done and many thanks for that. Um, and now for something that shares some slight similarities with Luke's subject areas, I'm delighted to introduce Deirdre Kelleher, whose fascinating IRC-funded research is going 
to take us inside an institution that's often misunderstood, the Oberstown Children Detention Campus. Thanks, Deirdre. Thanks, Alison. Hi there, um, my name is Deirdre Kelleher and I'm undertaking a four-year PhD in the School of Law at UCC and my research project is entitled The Lives, Experiences and Outcomes of Young People Who Are Detained at Oberstown Children Deten Detention Campus, a participatory study. I'm extremely fortunate to have been awarded a four-year employment-based scholarship with the Irish Research Council and Oberstown Children Detention Campus as the employment partner. So this means that I have access to data and to a variety of resources at Oberstown that will help me with my research. Oberstown is the facility in which young people sentenced to detention or remanded to detention in Ireland are held. My work will therefore be very much in the world of youth justice and youth detention, and it will be the first in-depth study of the experience of youth detention in Ireland. My position as an employee will provide me with the necessary access to people, data and information to conduct a thorough analysis of the frameworks in place at the campus and to undertake meaningful engagement with young people at Oberstown and to hear firsthand of their experiences. However, I will remain very much at arm's length from the day-to-day -day operation of the campus, which enables me to study the operation from a more objective perspective. My research will involve an examination of the model of care adopted within Oberstown and in particular as the campus transitions to the adoption of a rights-based rules framework. I will be conducting a mixed methods study and it will include a literature review of the international research in the field of juvenile detention, quantitative data analysis using data that's available to me at Oberstown in relation to the young people who are and who have been in detention in Ireland. And it will also involve qualitative research in the form of interviews and focus groups with young people in detention. And these interviews will seek to ascertain the, the perspective of young people in relation to their experiences during their period of detention. So bearing in mind Oberstown's children's rights policy framework, I will be examining how the approaches, the policies, the programmes and the decision making that is adopted on the campus are meeting the needs of young people and fulfilling their rights. In broad terms, my research question will be, are we getting it right? Are we in Ireland providing the appropriate levels and types of support to the young people in detention from the perspective of those young people that ensures that their rights are being respected? Are we vindicating the rights of young people in detention in compliance with our obligations under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and our own domestic legislation, the Children Act 2001? I hope with my research to utilise the rich qualitative and quantitative data to which I will have unparalleled access to improve our understanding of the experience of detention by young people in Ireland and to identify key areas of reform or development for policymakers. Thank you, Deirdre. That's such an interesting research topic and fascinating work. It also is giving voice to the experiences of young people who are directly affected. Now for something different, I'm going to pass the mic back to Michael Boland to tell us what he is hoping to find in company law. Thank you, Deirdre. Uh, indeed, my research is in company law. It's funded by the Irish Research Council and supervised by Professor Irene Lynch Fannan. Basically, I'm trying to show that Irish company law takes an approach called the entity focused approach, which provides that the company is a single standalone entity distinct from its shareholders. Now, this comes as no surprise to anyone with even a basic understanding of company law. But yet surprisingly, when it comes to defining what the company means or understanding what the interests of the company are, 
an equivalence is drawn between the interests of the company and those of its shareholders, as if the shareholders are the company. For listeners that are familiar with this, in particular for listeners that are familiar with company law theory, they'll know that this debate has been ongoing since the early 19th century and that it really took off in and around the 1930s. They'll also be aware that it's still ongoing. But this is an important debate, no matter how long it has been going on for. But one of the things that I think has hindered the progression of this debate is that it has largely been rooted in normative arguments. What I mean by that is that at either side of the debate, we have scholars arguing that the company should be X. And at the other side, we have scholars arguing that the company should be Y. I think that when we have an exchange like this, it really gets us nowhere because really it is a clash between two certainties. So rather than add my voice to the debate as to what the corporation should be, my research is trying to show what the corporation, particularly that in Ireland, actually is. And to do this, I'm drawing from decisions of the Irish courts, which confirm that the theory underpinning Irish company law is entity theory, that the company is a single standalone entity, if there ever was any doubt about that. And also that a variety of different actors like employees, consumers and others form part of the corporate entity. So I think then that my research is different to that of others who have taken part in this debate because mine is grounded in doctrine, i.e. black letter company law, rather than in moral or ethical arguments, which I think have tended to dominate this debate. I also really enjoy it. And of course, I'm going to say that it's important. But when we just sit back and think about how corporate activity impacts our day-to-day -day lives, we realize just how important corporate law is. When we log on to Netflix, for example, or onto a social media platform, we are relying on corporate ingenuity there. When we get our COVID-19 vaccine, we are once again relying on corporate enterprise. So given the corporation's impact on our day-to-day -day lives, the good and the bad, I think it's important to keep it under the microscope and to continue asking the question as to what the purpose of the corporation is, no matter how protracted that debate has become. And I hope that when I'm finished, I'll have made even just a small contribution to that debate. Thank you very much for that, Michael. Your research really does sound fascinating. Michael's work is featured in the Conversation UK, the Irish Times newspaper, 
the Cork Online Law Review, and most recently in Blogging for Sustainability, run by the Department of Private Law at the University of Oslo. All of Michael's published and a selection of his unpublished work can be accessed on his SSORN page by searching for Michael James Boland. Well, at this stage, we've nearly covered every corner of, of the law. Family law, criminal law, youth justice and company law. Now let's hear a little about administrative law from Ashling Ryan. Great, thanks Gordon. Um, I'm a second year PhD student in the School of Law and I am researching administrative law. Now, administrative law is the law relating to government bodies and local authorities. You may have heard the phrase, who guards the guardians or who watches the watchmen? And this represents the idea that it can be difficult to hold those in power to account for their actions or decisions. My research looks at how the courts control the powers exercised by public body decision makers. These decision makers make decisions that impact the everyday lives of everyone living in this society together. For example, decisions made in the areas of social welfare, planning, immigration, housing, employment, to, make, to, to name but a few. And these are decisions that impact on our human rights. In certain circumstances, the courts will step in and determine that a decision has gone too far and it is a disproportionate interference with individual rights. Administrative decision makers are left in a difficult position then of having to get on with, on one hand, the business of administering the finite resources of the state, while at the same time having to make more decisions that will then stand up to judicial scrutiny. I am researching whether proportionality might be a suitable tool for administrative decision makers to use to make those difficult decisions. And I'm doing this by carrying out interviews with administrative decision makers in public bodies to better understand how they experience the law in carrying out their work. One of the things I enjoy most about my research is pretty much everyone I speak to about, about my PhD has their own story about an interaction with a public body that negatively impacted their life or an application that was really challenging to get over the line. The State Pension Forum or Susie Grant application comes to mind immediately here, but there are many examples. Maybe listening to this podcast right now, you will be reminded of a really frustrating time when a public body just didn't get your story properly or understand the extent to which a decision would impact your life or made a decision that to you just didn't feel right or fair or just. There are many barriers individuals face in trying to claim their rights. For example, technological barriers, literacy levels, cost, lack of legal representation, complicated forms, so there is an access to justice thread running through my research also. Modern bureaucracy has become so complex and so layered that work like my PhD is needed to try to distill what is happening in our public bodies and propose ways in which decisions could be made in a more rights respectful way. I hope the impact of my PhD would be to contribute to the body of knowledge working to improve first instance decision making getting the decision right first time so people don't end up in years of litigation and appeals with public bodies or increased feelings of disenfranchisement from the state. This type of research is needed so that the relationship between individuals and the state can be one of transparency, fairness, openness and trust. That's great stuff, Asling. Thank you. So Asling is the chair of Cork Votes an organisation that ran a significant campaign to get Cork voters registered to vote ahead of the 2020 general election. 
Asling has presented her research at the Social Legal Studies Association Annual Conference and will be presenting at the European Group for Public Administration Annual Conference this September. She is also a volunteer solicitor with FLAC and is an adjudicator at the Residential Tenancies Board. So clearly Asling will put what she learns in her research to good practice and I can't think of better impact than that. Uh, congratulations Asling. Now let's talk about gambling. We have two researchers looking into this issue, but each are coming at it from slightly different perspectives. First, we'll hear a theoretical response to gambling from Bernard Long, and immediately after, we'll listen to a regulatory and policy-driven approach to the issue from Deirdre Leahy. Thanks so much for the introduction, Luke. I'm absolutely uh, delighted to be here today to, to speak about my research. Um, my research relates to gambling self-exclusion agreements. Um, in short, self-exclusion agreements are a form of pre-commitment um, that are used to prevent gambling at some future point. They are uh, mostly used by those who have a problem with gambling or, or who are addicted to gambling. Um, gambling addiction is associated with very intense cravings and impulsivity and uh, periods of a sort of tunnel vision in which the um, the affected person uh, faces an, an almost insurmountable urge to uh, gamble. The idea behind self-exclusion agreements is that um, a person like this can, during a period of lucidity or a period where they are not experiencing intense cravings, uh, approach um, a gambling operator or perhaps a centralized state um, body and request that at a future point, if they try to gamble, i.e. when they are experiencing intense cravings, they will be refused service. Um, and uh, this is viewed in the literature as a somewhat successful or somewhat promising um, avenue to um, address problem gambling supported by the appropriate um, healthcare interventions. Now, in many jurisdictions, though not in Ireland, operators are legally obliged to provide um, self-exclusion, either um on a business to consumer basis or by subscribing to a centralized self-exclusion um register now part of my research involves looking at the um manner in which self-exclusion agreements operate in these jurisdictions and what my research has turned up so far is that there is a wide variety of approaches so um in different jurisdictions. For example, we find that the standard self-exclusion agreement is for uh, a variety of um, periods. In many, it's three years as standard or five years as standard, whereas in Singapore, for example, agreements are indefinite as standard and um, a self-excluder who wishes to have it revoked has to apply to relevant state bodies to have it uh, to have it revoked and so this ambiguity i find uh, quite interesting um another ambiguity is what happens when a self-exclusion agreement is not properly enforced so when a gambler has entered into an agreement seeks to gamble in contravention of it and is allowed to do so um in 
many jurisdictions, the operator can be subject to fines or even a revocation or suspension of their operating license. Um, I suppose there is a, a lot to be said for that, of course. Um, operators have a strong economic interest in allowing problem gamblers to continue gambling. Um, Vegas, as they say, was not built on winners. At the same time, of course, operators don't have a perfect capacity for enforcing self-exclusion, um, particularly if it's through a centralized hub and it's a consumer that they're not familiar with. So there may also be something to be said for a, a leniency in, in circumstances like that. Um, in other jurisdictions, there may also be ramifications for the self-excluder who tries to gamble. They can be subject to fines. And of course, they're... Um, that raises a lot of questions about whether it's appropriate to punish someone who is um, suffering from an addiction. Um, but in any case, these are the uh, legal issues and, and, and practical issues that I'm investigating across jurisdictions. Uh, as a, a further point, I'm also very interested in the theoretical aspects of self-exclusion. And so I'll briefly talk about those. One issue is that self-exclusion can create a circumstance in which we have two conflicting preferences belonging to the same person, i.e. to gamble and to not to gamble. Um, and I suppose this raises very interesting questions about autonomy and whether or not a gambler who seeks, who is choosing to gamble can be restrained from doing so based on a decision that they made in the past, perhaps even years ago. Um, and so, yeah, this raises a very interesting um, question about which decision we should prefer and which decision we should act on. Um, it might be that we should always keep the self-excluder from uh, gambling because we think that they shouldn't because it's the right decision. But this raises the question then of why not to prohibit gambling generally or why not to why not why not um preclude that person from gambling whether they revoke the self-exclusion agreement or not and so in any case these are the issues that i'm investigating my, my long-term goal um i suppose is to establish a theoretical framework um which addresses some of these issues and um a standard against which uh various self-exclusion programs can be measured now I'd like to hand over to someone whose um, related interest has um, allowed them to provide me with invaluable advice and um, collaboration. Um, and that's uh, Deirdre Leahy, who will be speaking now about her research on gambling law. Thank you, Bernard. And thank you, Luke. So my research is also on gambling, but it takes a different route to Bernard's. So my research is on the regulation of online gambling by the EU, and it is funded by the Irish Research Council. So in 2012, the EU adopted a formal policy for online gambling. That policy expired in 2018, and it hasn't been replaced. New policy proposals for regulation of online gambling have not been adopted by the EU which continues to take the view that gambling comes within the regulatory competence of the individual member states. So this means that the EU has refrained from enacting 
a sector-specific regulation for online gambling. Now, this may seem strange, especially since we know that gambling over the internet is a borderless activity. So my research questions this approach and it investigates whether some existing EU laws can address aspects of online gambling. It also questions the legal assumptions which shape current policy choices. And the purpose of this research is to reopen the discussion about EU policy choices for the online gambling sector. So although some concrete proposals were put forward during the recent policy period, this sector specific strategy has had limited impact. I began my research by looking into the influences which shaped that policy and this investigation left me asking some questions about the concepts and the legal justifications for the policy choices made. These issues put a question mark over the legislative assumptions that shape the regulatory choices and which continue to influence the Commission's policy strategy even today. What I'm trying to do here is to tease out the question of whether the EU has greater competence to legislate for online gambling than it exercises at present and how that might influence future policy for the sector. Since appointment of the von der Leyen Commission, it is also evident that the EU does not intend to revisit its policy of not regulating for online gambling. At the same time, the growth of gambling online in all its formats continues to expand and with limited regulatory cohesion between the member states. So in addition, it is evident now that the marketplace for chance-based forms of online entertainment is changing. There is increasing gamification of online video games through development of monetized gaming techniques, such as loot boxes. At the same time, gambling operators have begun to offer more free-to-play games on their sites, and that blurs the boundaries between gambling and video games. My research looks at what these changes mean for the EU and the issues which should influence any new policy or laws to be made for online gambling. Many thanks, Bernard and Deirdre. That really is such fascinating work. And it's so timely as gambling is an issue that we're hearing more and more about in the media. I know it's an issue that President Michael D. Higgins has recently spoken about as well. Uh, both Bernard and Deirdre have received prestigious scholarships to conduct their research, which I think really reflects the urgent need for reform in this area. And they've also both contributed to RTE Brainstorm. So if you'd like to hear any more of their research, go to rte.ie forward slash brainstorm. You'll also find material there from both Rhoda and I, and it's Rhoda Jennings that I'm introducing now. Rhoda's research, like mine, is in the area of environmental law, and it is funded by the Environmental Protection Agency through the Irish Research Council. Take it away, Rhoda. <laughs> Thanks, Alison. Um, <laughs> as Alison said, my research is in the area of environmental law. More particularly, I'm looking at how scientific data is used in the development and application of environmental law in the EU and it's supervised by Professor Owen McIntyre and Professor Mark Pusty. My background is in the natural sciences and I worked as an environmental lawyer, so this science law interface is of great interest to me. And it's a growth research area. There's a lot of focus today on science communication and on science for policy. And this has been brought into the spotlight more so now with the COVID-19 pandemic, which we are all aware of. 
and we can see how the science advisors, which in Ireland take the form of NEFET, are interacting with the government. It isn't a totally transparent process, but we can catch glimpses of the advice that is offered and the scientific evidence on which it is based and how this is translated into action at a practical level, which affects us all. We can see from the COVID pandemic, the issues that arise with the scientific data, the disagreements over the results, the lack of data, this all leads to uncertainty, which is intrinsic to science and can't be avoided. And it's even more prevalent in the natural sciences like in environmental science. And we can see all the other factors that influence how the government and society respond to the advice. It isn't a straightforward process. Now, the pandemic is an emergency situation and has a more immediate impact on human health and the economy than environmental issues. So there is a more concerted effort to create a streamlined link between science and the government. However, the long term effect of environmental problems can't be underestimated. Environmental problems impact on the economy, on human health, on the ecosystem as a whole, on which we are all reliant. The slow take up of environmental data by the policymakers and legislature is most apparent in the case of the climate crisis. While this issue is finally gaining some momentum, evidence of global warming was first discovered in the late 19th century, that's the 1800s, and it was presented as an issue of concern to policymakers in the 1970s or even before. We need to use the relevant scientific data to inform environmental policy and legislation at its inception. And we need to use this data to direct our responses to the issues of today. How we interpret and use the data has implications on the effectiveness of legislation and on its legitimacy. So it isn't just a case of listening to the scientists for the sake of the science. We need to actively incorporate scientists and their work into the policy life cycle. So there is a more coherent approach to today's environmental problems and will also allow us identify issues that are coming up on the horizon. And this is the area that I'm looking at. Wonderful, Rhoda, thank you. Like all of my PhD colleagues here in the School of Law, Rhoda's work is making a significant contribution to her field and is already having an impact on a national conversation around climate change, biodiversity and environmental governance. Rhoda has been published on RTE Brainstorm and as we speak is fresh from her appearance at the 31st Environmental Researchers Colloquium Environ 2021, where she was one of over 100 presenters. Such impressive work, Rhoda, congratulations. Another of those presenters at Environ 2021 was Alison Hardman, whose research combines environmental and planning law. Let's hear some more about Alison's research now. Many thanks, Ashling. So in my research, I'm looking at how Ireland can achieve its climate action targets and specifically our renewable energy commitments. And I'm looking at this from a project authorization perspective. Um, by way of background and context, I'll say that the climate action commitments that Ireland has signed up to require the development of significant amounts of new infrastructure. And each new infrastructure project requires planning permission. And as these projects tend to be unpopular, think large scale wind farms, for instance, they are regularly challenged before the courts, often with great success. And this raises the spectre of widespread project delay and project failure through the planning process. And obviously, that's a very serious issue if we're to meet our climate action targets and successfully reduce our greenhouse gas emissions through reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. 
So it is against this backdrop that my research, which is kindly sponsored by AirGrid, seeks to explore how we can render the application process more legally certain and simultaneously engage more successfully with host communities in an effort to reduce project opposition. As such, I'm looking at the process from the perspective of the developer. I've come to realize that this is quite unusual in this field, but I have quite significant experience as a planning lawyer working with developers. And as such, I have insight into the difficulties faced by even the best intentioned developers aiming to achieve the highest standards of environmental assessment and community engagement. From the standpoint that we as a country are dependent upon public and private sector developers to develop the infrastructure we need to meet our climate action targets, I'm researching whether the project authorization process is designed in a manner that provides sufficient legal certainty and predictability of process for these developers, particularly in relation to public participation. I'm focusing as a research priority on why host communities tend to be so opposed to these projects and how that sits in the context of delivering EU and national policy. Public op opposition is centrally important because meeting our targets will require the development of new of new renewable energy infrastructure in and around Irish communities almost nationwide. In looking at this, I'm specifically studying the theory and objectives of public participation, the nature of community engagement as currently provided for, and the potential for it to be expanded in a manner that could reduce project opposition. Ideally, this would lead to a methodology more acceptable to communities and more quantifiable for developers. My research, therefore, aims to develop to provide a theoretical exploration of the tension between delivering our climate action targets on schedule and, and at the same time giving full effect to the rights of citizens under the Aarhus Convention, both of which are EU requirements. I'm also aiming for a more practical assessment of whether it is possible to reduce the inclination of citizens to avail of access to justice with regard to renewable energy projects by augmenting access to environmental information and public participation earlier in that planning process. This all ties into the question of successful delivery of government policy. I'm anxious to ensure that there's some impact arising from this research and as such I'm doing my best to speak at a different at a, at different conferences and to publish in an array of fora designed to reach wide-ranging audiences. I recently won a Best Social Engagement Award for my Environ 2021 presentation, so hopefully that's a sign that I'm making at least some of this really quite dense material somewhat accessible. Thank you very much for that outline of your research, Alison. It is clear that there's room for a huge impact to come from that research. Well, that's everyone. But there are many more PhD researchers at the UCC School of Law whose research covers issues like transnational environmental law, marine pollution, charity regulation and reckless trading. For updates on our research, you can find us on Twitter or LinkedIn, where most of us have a presence. If you'd like to hear more UCC School of Law podcasts and indeed hear more interviews in this current impact series, then subscribe to our channel via your podcast provider. And a huge thanks to Professor Irene Lynch-Fannon in her capacity as Vice Dean for external engagement for spearheading this podcast series. And to Margaret Donnellan, the Law School's Marketing and Communications Officer, for getting this podcast off the ground and for helping us communicate our research. And of course, thank you for listening. So from us all, Michael, Ashley, Bernard, Gordon, Alison, Luke, the two Deirdres and myself, Rhoda, Bye for now.